At Eastern Bank, we believe that growing business should also grow the community. That's why we work to give all business owners what they need to take their dreams to the next level. Our dedication to small businesses and communities has inspired us to create the Equity Alliance for Business program and become the number one SBA lender in Massachusetts for 15 years running. We're proud to be here for all businesses, big and small. See the good we can do for you by visiting easternbank.com slash business. Member FDIC. In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlet Case. Available now. Hi, Seymour listeners. Shirley Leung here. For the holidays, we're going to be turning the mic around. So I invite you to AMA, Ask Me Anything. Send questions to Seymour at globe.com. Have questions about the state of media, podcasting, who has been my favorite guest? Seymour at globe.com. Okay, here's the show. Welcome to Say More from Boston Globe Opinion. Filling in for Shirley Leung this week, I'm Brian Bergstein, editor of the Globe's Ideas section. I'll be coming on the podcast now and then to host conversations about artificial intelligence. My goal? To demystify AI by asking big questions about it. One of the major claims we hear about AI is that it will transform science, that it will identify new drugs, design new materials, and help spark new energy sources, that will help doctors pinpoint diagnoses. That's all very exciting. But still, I think it's fair to ask, why is everyone so sure this is true? Exactly how is AI changing the way scientists do their work? My guest today is doing work at the very core of these questions. Manolis Kellis is a professor at MIT who heads the school's computational biology group. They use computers to analyze DNA in ever greater detail. Manolis also believes that AI will soon be able to handle a lot of our jobs and that this will be a good thing. Manolis Kellis, welcome to Say More. Thank you so much, Brian. It's such a pleasure to be here. Manolis, you've produced countless research papers on genetics. You're solving biological puzzles about how DNA operates. But you're not a biologist by training, right? I mean, you're a computer scientist. So have those fields essentially merged? I would say that there's no way to answer biological questions without computational science nowadays. That the genome and all of the technologies that it enabled transformed biology into an information-based discipline. And with the advent of clinical records at scale, genomic technologies that allow you to probe millions of cells from each person across thousands of people, that has surpassed the capabilities of old-school biology. And that has really opened up the hood for hardcore machine learning, data science, and systematic mining of these data sets to elucidate the mechanisms and the circuitry underlying complex traits in human disease at unprecedented resolution. And I can't think of a better place than a computer science and AI department to be actually asking all these questions. What does that unlock? What are some of the big questions AI is helping you answer? At the basic foundation, we have the genomic layer, and that's the programming language of the human genome. 
Where are the genes? How do mutations impact their function? Where are the control elements? And how do they define the circuits that turn genes on and off in different cell types? How is genetic variation impacting that circuitry? What are the pathways, the biological modules that are responsible for underlying gene functions? Because therapeutics and drugs are ultimately going to be targeting a specific protein. So what our goal is to sort of cut across all these layers and that allows to translate the disease level all the way down to what should we change at the gene level. But what has changed lately? Because about 10 or 15 years ago, I think we heard a lot about some of these basic ideas. You know, a big buzzword in science was big data. That the idea that, you know, computers would analyze untold amount of information, the kinds of information you're talking about, and that they would find patterns that, you know, humans would have no chance of spotting. Um, so, but why is generative AI or large language models, the kinds of things we've been hearing about lately, really anything different? It is fundamentally different, and you're absolutely right about that. So traditional machine learning has always been about statistical correlations, being able to learn correlations, regression analysis, and so on and so forth, that allow you to predict patterns based on data. And that's, that's what we were doing 10, 12 years ago, let's say? Correct. But I'm now learning from data. What deep learning it does that's fundamentally different is that in addition, it has layers and layers and layers of representations, of abstractions, of concepts about the world. I want my AI to be creative and give me 20 answers of which 15 might be wrong, but five might be something that I wouldn't have thought of instead of giving three answers, all of which I would have thought of. And I, as a human, have so many more tools at my disposal. I, of course, have my own biological understanding and intuition to evaluate these, but I also have chemical tools. I have biophysical experiments. I can then run the simulation. I can actually synthesize it. I can make all 20 of them and then see how they work. And maybe I can dismiss some of them, but I'll still synthesize them. What I'm kind of gathering from this is that past computational tools sort of gave you some sort of readout. Here's what you're seeing in the data. What you're describing now is a true collaborator. You're building a system that can be a true collaborator. That's one of the fundamental differences. For now, we're not quite there yet, but that's where I want to go. Is there any precedent for the level of change, the degree of change this will bring to science? Any other previous leap in scientific methods you'd compare this to? I like to say that we have been riding the same exponential for not just decades, but hundreds of years. It's just that the exponential looks steeper exactly where you're sitting. And right now it looks like we're riding a bullet train at 100 miles an hour or 1,000 miles an hour. And we're in for a wild ride. I am truly enjoying this extraordinary explosion of progress. So progress can come much faster. Progress is coming faster, not just month to month, but week to week. So when you think about this bigger question of AI transforming science and that the transformation is happening faster and faster, what applications are you most excited about outside of biology? And in fact, are there any fields where you're skeptical it will have an impact at all? Let me answer first within biology. So I would say that many people are afraid that we're going to run out of jobs, that AI is going to be able to do everything. And I would say in the short term, we need probably a thousand times more scientists than we have now. We need a thousand times more educators than we have now. We need school teachers. We need 
people to look after the elderly. We need parents to spend time with their children. Humanity is stretched so thin in so many ways that everyone could sort of benefit from having a huge increase in the task force. And that can be done by either having a thousand times more people on the planet or by having every person be a thousand times more capable, more creative, more um, efficient. I want an AI that enables everyone in the world to be part of the scientific mission. Everyone to be able to use their creative juices, their intuition, their ability to drive these systems and these machines, which my hope is will become so much more accessible so that people who are currently hating their jobs will be able to sort of be part of that discovery process. And not just for medicine, not just for uh, biology, but for every branch of science, that basically the human enterprise can be lifted to levels previously reserved to the very few, but now hopefully democratize education, enable children from the entire world to have a personal tutor. So I don't see humans being replaced any, anytime soon. I see humans as being augmented. I see many of our existing jobs perhaps being replaced. I see many of the mundane parts of our jobs definitely being replaced. And I see humans as entering a new stage of productivity. More of my conversation with Manolis Kellis after this short break. Across New England, commercial businesses of all sizes rely on Eastern Bank. We help clients grow by being able to answer their larger loan needs and by offering innovative solutions, smart decision-making, and one-on-one -on -one relationships. From franchise financing to community development and asset-based lending, our knowledgeable and experienced commercial team deeply understands your business and the communities you serve. See how we can help you meet your business goals at easternbank.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. Okay, so Manolis, I think of you very much as a leader in the AI community here in Boston. Uh, I bump into you at a lot of AI-related events. Uh, you and your family have graciously hosted AI salons in your home. I've been lucky enough to attend some of them. And I'm just wondering, why do you hold these salons? Like, why, what, why are these spaces of discussion and debate so personally important to you? I'm a scientist, but above all, I'm human. And if you look at deep down, what does everybody, every human need? They need a sense of belonging, they need a community, they need to feel welcome, to feel included, and so on and so forth. And that's what we're trying to do with our salons. We're trying to sort of create a space where nothing is out of bounds, where everyone can kind of converse on equal standing. They're experts in so many different disciplines, but naive in so many other disciplines. And the ability to ask these quote-unquote dumb questions to basically say, well, I may be thinking about this wrong, but what if... Da, da, da. that allows all of us to come together as a single hive, as a single tribe, and sort of abolish these differences. And we have people who have dramatically contrasting opinions. When this whole, you know, let's put a stop to AI for six months thing was coming on, we had the person who wrote that draft and the people who opposed it all in the same room talking with each other. There were more than 33,000 signatures on that open letter calling for a six-month pause. Yours was not one of them. So I'm curious why. I think it would be actually counterproductive. 
And the reason why I say this is that um, the def- first of all, we can't we can't stop it. <laughs> this is part of it. Like it's like saying, oh, fire. You know, fire is very dangerous. Maybe we should wait a hundred thousand years and see what fire could be bad for, and like not use it. Like, of course, fire can burn down cities, but it might also be the evolutionary leap that allowed our brains to grow larger, and sort of the control of fire and the ability to cook food, you know, may have actually given rise to civilization. So in that context, a six-month ban seems like we are almost against progress. And I would say that, yes, we want to make progress the right way, that maybe the best way to control Skynet from Terminator 2 is to actually have 50 different companies building their own version of AI so that no single AI will dominate and and sort of take over humanity. And I I think that the more capable the, the systems might become, the more aligned and alignable they might even become. The other aspect is, oh, you know, let's pause now and for six months we're going to, I don't know, think about it. I'm like, what What were you doing the last six months? What makes us think that the next six months will be different? And now six months have passed. What did you do in those six months? Do you have an, an answer now? And at the same time, we're nowhere near the Terminator view of AI just taking over. I think these systems are extremely capable for almost any individual human task but they don't have agency. They don't have a view of the world. They don't have their own goals. They don't have emotions. They don't have a will to dominate. They don't have any of these things that have made humans, you know, constantly fight against each other. Point taken on the limitations of AI as it stands now, but I believe you think that we're on the precipice of AI being actually more intelligent than us, that a superior form of intelligence will essentially arise. What do we traditionally think of as intelligence? So, you know, I would say 30 years ago, we thought of intelligence as playing chess, being able to, I don't know, uh, program or being able to carry out things that are very orderly. The things that we have traditionally thought of as smart are the things that humans have been kind of bad at and that machines have been good at. As for surpassing humans in any one human task, oh, I think we're not just there soon, but we're probably there already for a myriad of human tasks. When it comes to math and science and many of these games of intelligence like chess and Go, humans have been blown out of the water for a long time now. And it's very difficult to argue that in any one human task, AI will never surpass us. I think what's the unique feature about humans is that all of these tasks are put together, that there's agency, that there's common sense, that there's embodiment, there's the ability to interact with the natural world. And you can list a dozen or so capabilities that are still lacking from AI systems. We're not that far from being able to put them all together. But let me challenge that just a little bit, because even if you put those things together, even if you could get the machine that wins at Go to analyze proteins and, you know, do any of the individual things that these amazing, you know, single sort of purpose tools can do, these still are going to be disembodied. This is software in a data center. This is still something that only sees the world kind of in pure abstraction. It has no lived experience in the world. It has no stake. So AI, it knows the word love. It knows all the context for love in various texts, but it doesn't really know what it means to want. It doesn't, it can't experience hunger. It can't experience the world. So how can you ever have a system that is at that much of a remove 
actually surpass us at the thing that really defines probably the core of human intelligence, which is its flexibility, which is the fact that we are not machines, that we're driven by urges and desires and all kinds of wants. The very fact of our non-computing parts of our brains is sort of what's going to make us, I think, not only still, you know, more intelligent, more kind of capable and more flexible, but also keep us in the position of power. Like, basically, there's no reason to think that this disembodied computer in a data center can get more powerful than us. We just don't let it do certain things. I find some very interesting themes in what you're saying. On one hand, you're saying the thing that defines us is the non-computable. It's the non-cerebral, perhaps. It's the uh, non-intelligent, perhaps. And then you kind of twist it around and you said, and that's what makes us intelligent. And it's kind of interesting. I feel that the cerebral part is what we call intelligent. And the more guttural, emotional, you know, I, I get angry, I get frightened, etc. That's perhaps what we would have called not intelligent 30 years ago. That basically somehow intelligence would be the victory of our reasoning centers over our emotional centers. And now that AI has kind of conquered that, we're saying, aha, it can't do the emotional stuff. And, you know, maybe in a couple of years or in a couple of weeks, we will have something that emulates anger and fear and emotions and being stubborn and jealousy, et cetera, extremely well. And then at some point we'll be like, wait a minute, chimps can do that too. And, uh, you know, what defines humans distinctly from chimps that AI can do. So on one side, we have AI. On the other side, we have primates. And we have to decide where does intelligence lie? Because a lot of the things that you're describing, primates can do very well. Are we suggesting that this is the epitome of intelligence because AI can't do that? Or are we suggesting that perhaps the thing that makes us human is what AI has kind of perhaps started chipping off, layers off, to the place that we're, you know, closer to our animal instincts. Because emotions and fear and desire and jealousy, animals have that, primates have that. So what's uniquely intelligent about humans? It's that prefrontal cortex that, that grew a hundredfold since the primates, that grew a thousandfold since mammals. And uh, that aspect, I think he is very good at. Well, to be clear, I'm not saying that intelligence is all the non-computational stuff. I'm saying it's our ability to put it all together. It's our ability to use our reasoning and logic in the service of things that we evolved to need. Yeah, and, and that I agree with you completely. Uh, you know, completely. Basically, I think AI systems are not as malleable. They're not as emotional. They're not as intuitive as humans are. But the capabilities that are emerging from this type of model are extraordinary and are putting the vast majority of us to shame when it comes to the diversity of tasks that they can be extraordinarily good at. And these are deeply intellectual, highly challenging tasks. And they're extraordinarily good at, at those things. So we just have to be humble about it and embrace the fact that it might be okay for machines to also be intelligent without our self-pride being hurt. So I think for a lot of people, it's less a question of their pride as much as their job. I mean, do you think everybody should be ready for computers 
to replace us? So I, I think that every, every job, every single job on this planet will be very soon dramatically different through robots, through AI, through the ability to interact with these systems, the ability to have these systems more and more embedded within our everyday life. But human jobs are not going away any, anytime soon. New jobs will be created at a level unprecedented in human history. And these will allow us to hopefully take on challenges that are also unprecedented in human history. And I think AI can be our partner. We have so many mountains to climb and AI can be our climbing partner. AI will not replace us anytime soon, but I am eager for it to replace the mundane aspects of what we do. Perhaps every aspect of what I do today could be replaceable. But even teaching students? I mean, isn't it kind of a fallacy to assume that there's some objectively better or more efficient way to do the sort of art of teaching? So I had a meeting this morning with one of the teachers in my kids' school, and I had basically given her as an assignment to use ChatGPT over the weekend. And she told me how she had spent a lot of time in the kitchen with her mother, like, you know, asking questions, asking to revise essays, to say what was wrong or right about an essay, etc. And she came back with bright, shiny eyes, thrilled at using ChatGPT and AI as part of her becoming a better teacher. So I think that there's different mindsets that we can have. With a growth mindset, I would say you would be excited about AI replacing so many different aspects of what you do so that it can free you up to do more things that AI is not yet good at. In terms of teaching, there's many components of teaching. Part of it is inspiration. And I don't think AI is about to replace that anytime soon. Part of it is knowledge. Part of it is classification. Part of it is grading. Part of it is synthesizing or explaining or personalizing your explanations. And I think AI will be way better than us for many of those things because it has the hours that every child needs to answer the quote-unquote dumb questions, to basically sit down with the best in the class and push them to their limit and the one that's struggling the most and push them to their own limits. And I think that is extraordinarily exciting. What we should want is the best for society, not just a paycheck for each of us. If I wake up every morning with the guilt of knowing that I stopped the machine from doing my job better, I don't know how that's better for my own self-esteem. Well, Manolis Kellis is, in my opinion, unlikely to be replaced anytime soon by an AI as head of the computational biology group at MIT. He's also a member of the Broad Institute at MIT and Harvard. Manolis, thank you for joining me on Say More. Thank you so much, Brian. Say More is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Anna Kussmer with help from Scott Hellman and Abby Kanina. Our editor is Jim Dow. Our engineer is Uzair Ahmed. Maggie Taylor is our marketing coordinator. Our music is from APM Music. If you like the show, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Email us at saymore at globe.com. I'm Brian Bergstein. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.